The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Know His hope And sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world Falls around me I rest And know That He has found me Christ the rock Is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. If you have been listening of late, you know that this is an ongoing study with regard to prophecy and eschatology, that is the study of last things, specifically the rapture, the great tribulation, God's wrath, Christ's second return, and all of the accompanying issues regarding the timing of these events. And we have been looking at this through the prism of the Old Testament, in specific Leviticus chapter 23 and other accompanying books which cover God's prescribed and commanded feasts and festivals throughout the Jewish year. These feasts and festivals, as we pointed out, are God's appointed times or his rehearsals, as is indicated in the original language. And thus far, we have looked at the spring-summer festivals, which detailed Christ's first coming with his triumphal entry, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the establishment of the church found in Acts chapter 2. 
We looked at the interim period, sometimes referred to as the gap theory, the times of the Gentiles, or the church age. And then we began in earnest to look at the fall winter festivals, beginning with Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah, which it begins on the first of Tishri, which we just finished in our last episode. Now, no doubt at this point, you have questions with regard to Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah and some of the details which we have given thus far. I would just ask that you make note of those questions and concerns because I think, for the most part, we're going to address those concerns at the end of our presentation here. That being said, let's look at what comes next. Concurrent with the beginning of the first and second day of Tishri and Yom Teruah, there also begins a 10-day period of time called by the Jews the Days of Awe. And this 10-day period culminates on the 10th of Tishri, which is the next feast or festival on the Jewish calendar referred to as Yom Kippur. Now, as it turns out, these Days of Awe, these 10 days that are situated in between the 1st of Tishri and the 10th of Tishri are highly instructive with regard to how the Orthodox Jews view this period of time. These days of awe, these 10 days, are also referred to as Yomim Noraim, which translates as the days of awe or awesome days. These 10 days are considered high holy days, and ancient Orthodox Jews believe that God gave these days to teach them about, quote, the future tribulation period on earth, unquote. So this should give us immediately clarity as to what this type is referring to in the New Testament eschatology as we understand it in a pre-tribulational model. In any case, tradition holds that on Yom Teruah, that's the first of Tishri, the destiny of the righteous are written in the book of life and the destiny of the wicked are written in the book of death. However, during this 10 days, God, in his mercy, allows 10 days of final repentance before the books are sealed and the respective people in the books, their fates are final. What is highly interesting and coincidental is that when we look at the period of Yamim Noraim, we see that there are 10 days. However, what I would suggest that you do is take a piece of paper and draw 10 square boxes, one after the other, in a horizontal line on the, on the paper. And then in each of the boxes, label the middle of the box with a number, beginning with the number 1, then the number 2, then the number 3, and all the way through to the number 10. And label above the 10 boxes the days of awe. Now, in the first two boxes, labeled number one and number two, put some cross-hatching in these two boxes and draw a circle around the two boxes and understand that this first and second day 
of the first and second of Tishri, as previously stated on our last study, are the two days of Yom Torura. Remember, these are two days that are considered as one in Jewish thought in order to allow for enough time for the new moon to be sighted. So literally, you have two days as one. So that is the reasoning for circling and cross-hatching those two days as a separate part of the ten. Now, likewise, go to the far right in the last box labeled number 10 and cross-hatch and circle that tenth box all by itself and understand that this tenth day represents the day of Yom Kippur. So this day is distinct from the overall ten. So all total, as we look at our cross-hatched and or circled boxes, we see that there are a total of three days which are distinct and different from the overall days of awe. And with some basic subtraction, when we exclude the three, what do you have left? You have seven boxes and I am going to submit that these seven boxes, or seven days, represent the seven years, the final week of Daniel's 70 weeks of years. Remember, the Jews refer to the days of awe as the future tribulation period on earth. But in the pre-tribulational model, we understand that the tribulation does not begin until Christ raptures his church, which in our model that we've been looking at through this eschatological uh, feasts and festivals begins on the first of Tishri, those two days that are considered as one. And then the tenth day represents Christ's second coming, as we're going to see later. But in between, we have seven years wherein God's wrath is being poured out. And there is a tribulation, a great tribulation, such as the Bible describes has never been seen on this earth before. And that's what these days of awe are referring to. Now, lest you don't have to take my opinion, let's continue to look at the Orthodox Jewish understanding of the days of awe. As stated previously, when we looked at Yom Torura, we understood that according to the Jewish Orthodox perspective, that the first and second of Tishri ushered in what was known as the time of Jacob's trouble, which is always associated with the Great Tribulation, or more specifically, God's wrath, which was being poured out upon the earth. This again fits perfectly with our understanding of the pre-tribulational model. Now let's look at the next feast and festival, which occurs on Tishri the 10th, known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. We find these detailed in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 26 to 32. It says there, quote, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, verse 27, And on the tenth day of the seventh month, that being the month of Tishri, there shall be a day of atonement. 
It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Verse 28. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Verse 29. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. Verse 30. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Verse 31. Ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Finally, verse 32. It shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and ye shall afflict your souls in the ninth uh, day at the month of even, from even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath, unquote. So then, this brings us to Tishri the Tenth, a feast and festival referred to as Yom Kippur, or also Yom Hadin, which is the day of judgment, the day of atonement, and the day is considered a high holy day. It is celebrated by fasting, by prayer, and resting all day long. The day concludes with the holiest and most important Jewish ceremony of the entire year in the temple. In the ceremony, the high priest makes atonement for himself and for the sins of the Jewish people and reconciles God's people back into fellowship with God. According to Leviticus chapter 8, verse 33, seven days or one week before Yom Kippur, that would be in the days of awe that we've just been looking at, look what happens according to Jewish culture and history. The Jewish high priest separates himself and withdraws to a special room in the temple where he remains for those seven days until Yom Kippur. Again, I'm going to submit to you that this unusual cultural and historical phenomena where the Jewish priest separates himself and withdraws to a special room in the temple where they, he remains for seven days until Yom Kippur on the 10th uh, arrives is a type pointing towards the substance wherein Christ returns for his church on the first and second of Yom Torura, raptures his church, and then separates himself with his church, with the living and with the dead, all who are in Christ, and withdraws with them to a special room in the temple of God in the heavenlies, not the earthly temple, where he and the church remain for seven days or seven years until at some point during the next feast and festival, Yom Kippur comes around and now we're looking at Christ's second coming wherein he makes atonement for all of the remaining people who are his people. So on the morning of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest stands at the eastern gate and the various cows, goats, and sheep for offering are marched before him. 
During Yom Kippur, the high priest burns incense, takes repeated mikvah or ritual washings, changes his priestly garments for all white garments at least five times during the course of the overall rituals. The high priest would then reach into a box containing two stones. On one stone was written, quote, for Hashem, unquote, which simply means for God. And on the other, quote, Azazel, a quote, which would simply equate to Satan. These stones were mixed in the box, and the high priest would reach in and retrieve one of the stones without looking in his right hand, and then reach in with his left hand and grab the other one. The stones were used to decide which of two goats would be the Lord's goat for Hashem, and which would be the scapegoat for Azazel. Now, ideally, the hoped-for outcome was that the high priest would select the Hashem stone in his right hand, which was thought culturally to be the favored hand, as it is with Christ on the right hand of the Father, and he would select that Hashem stone in his right hand, which was thought to have God's favor. If not, then the selection was thought to be less favorable. In any case, once the selection was made, the high priest would then tie a scarlet wool cord around the horns of Azaziel's goat to identify it. And then a second scarlet wool cord would be tied to the sanctuary in the temple like a banner. The high priest would then take the young bullock with the uh, scarlet cord, place his hands over its head, symbolically confessing and transferring all the sins onto the bullock, and the high priest would slit the throat of the bullock and catch the blood in a dish. The high priest would then take a burning coal from the altar of sacrifice and incense into the Holy of Holies, where the priest would burn the incense and fill the room with smoke, representing the presence of God. The high priest would then exit, wash, and return with the blood of the bullock, which he would then sprinkle seven times on the mercy seat of the ark in order to have his sins forgiven. The high priest would then exit, kill the Lord's goat, and collect the blood in a dish. He would then re-enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the goat's blood seven times on the mercy seat of the ark. And this represented that the people of Israel had had their sins forgiven, and they were able to enter the presence of the Lord. The high priest would then make his final exit where he would sprinkle the combined bullock and goat, goat blood before the veil. He would cover the four corners of the horns of the altar of incense and the remaining blood was poured out at the base of the altar of sacrifice in the outer court. The high priest would then return to Azazel's goat and place his hands over the goat's head confessing the sins of the people and transferring them to the goat, pronouncing the sacred name of God. The goat, the goat would then be led into the wilderness, where it would be let go, it would wander off, it would get lost, and it would not be seen again. All symbolizing how that the sins of the people were forgotten about and taken away, not to be remembered anymore. Now, 
The ancient Jewish tradition states that if the Lord accepted the atonement offering once the scapegoat was released, the scarlet cord which was tied to the entrance of the sanctuary would turn white. This meant that the, again, that the Lord had accepted the atonement. Now, Orthodox Jews tie this ultimately to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, quote, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool, unquote. Now, we find an interesting historical legend, or perhaps it's simply history. Uh, I'll let you decide. In Talmud Tractate Yoma 39b, we have this historical note that says, quote, During the 40 years prior to the destruction of the Second Temple, that would be in 70 AD, the lot for God did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. So too the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel did not turn white, unquote. So in other words, what they are saying is that according to their historical or cultural or legend or what have you, that it was almost always the case that when they were carrying out this ritual prescribed by God, that God found favor in what they were doing. And as a result of what they were doing, lo and behold, the high priest was able to reach into the box and always find the Hashem stone in his right hand and uh, things were favorable. Likewise, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the sanctuary did in fact started out crimson red but then turned white as an indication that God had accepted their sacrifice. However, in this Talmud Tractate Yoma 39b, what it's being said here is that something happened 40 years prior to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. Now, just with a little math, 40 years prior to the Second Temple in 70 AD would be approximately AD 30. Something happened at that time which caused all of this which was happening on a regular basis to change. What happened? Well, from there on in, and for the next 40 years, from 30 AD all the way up until 70 AD, every year when the high priest reached into the box and hoped to grab with his right hand the uh, stone for Hashem, he in fact did not grab the right stone. He, he grabbed the wrong stone. He, he grabbed the Ezeziel stone with his right hand. And likewise, when they tied the scarlet cord to the uh, head of the goat and the other part to the sanctuary and led the goat off into the wilderness, the crimson cord did not turn white. It remained crimson for some reason. Now, here's the question. What historically happened on A.D. 30 that might potentially have caused something to change in the equation where God was no longer favoring the sacrifices that the high priest was doing? Well, I'm going to submit that 
what happened was Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, who was our better sacrifice, was crucified, died, rose again, and ascended to the Father, where he, once and for all, was accepted for all time, for all sins, past, present, and future, for all those who would be his elect. Therefore, God was making it abundantly clear that the rituals that the Jews were doing in following years, in 31 AD, in 32 AD, and all the way up to 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, God was not respecting those sacrifices anymore because essentially he was saying, hello, I already had the sacrifice of my son, my only son, and so I'm going to let you know in no uncertain terms that all this other stuff you're doing is unnecessary. What else could explain it if, in fact, this historical comment is true? In any case, at the conclusion of Yom Kippur, the shofar, the shofar Hagadol, the great trumpet was blown again to gather in the surviving believers from the awesome days, and this was done to commemorate the Jubilee, which occurred every 50 years to signify that Yom Kippur was finished and that like the Jubilee, we have been released from the bondage of our sins and our debts have been forgiven. Why? Because during that seven-year period, Christ is going to pour out his wrath on the earth and he's going to punish all of those who are outside of Christ, and he's going to, on Yom Kippur, going to be starting his new kingdom on earth, wherein there is no more sin, and there is no more Satan, and there is no more flesh, and all of that, things that we are looking forward to presently. So, with this being said, you ask, does that conclude our fall winter festivals? And the answer is no. But, for the time being, we need to go return to your notes, and if you have been maintaining what we recommended that you do was a drawing of a horizontal line with vertical markers labeled, we should at this point have a horizontal line with all of these spring-summer festivals. Then we should have a marker on the 1st of Elul in August-September where we begin uh, the Jewish preparation of uh, repentance leading up to Tishri. Then we have a vertical marker on the first and second of Tishri, referred to as Yom Torura. Then we have a vertical marker labeled number 10 for the 10th of Tishri, which represents Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And then, if you will, in between the first and the second and the 10th, draw a round or oval circle between the first and second and the tenth of Tishri and label that as the days of awe, which, as we pointed out, represent Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation or God's wrath being poured out. And then on the next marker, we're going to draw a vertical marker, label it number 15 for Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. So on Tishri the 15th, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 34, and Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13, what it says there, beginning in uh, verse 33, it says, 
quote, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, verse 34, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month, that being Tishri, shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. Verse 35, On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. Verse 36, Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, and on the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. Verse 37, These are the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, and a meat offering, a sacrifice, and drink offerings, and everything upon his day. Verse 38, Beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your freewill offerings which ye give unto the Lord, Verse 39, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Verse 40, and ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Verse 41, and ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. And verse 33. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt I am the Lord your God. Verse 44, And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So here we're talking on Tishri the 15th begins the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, also called the Season of Our Joy, or the Festival of Ingathering, the Feast of the Nations, and in this festival, God's people are commanded to build a temporary booth or tent-like structure, kind of like a lean-to made out of branches and different fruits and things like that. And they are to live in these temporary structures. Seven days is their home. This festival follows the historical pattern wherein Israel lived in temporary shelters in the wilderness for 40 years while wandering. At this time, same time that God commanded and instructed the construction and use of the tabernacle where God met and communed among his people. So, you ask, do we have some proposed substance that this refers to? Well, frankly, I believe what we're talking about in this Feast of Tabernacles is we're talking about the Millennial Kingdom, frankly. It's said to be a thousand years, but here obviously we have seven days, perhaps seven years. The best representation guess is here that following the pattern, the logical uh, flow of events according to what we understand of eschatology would be that this period of time would be the period of time 
especially given the reference to the gathering of nations where God's people and even those who are not God's people are living for a thousand years where Christ rules and reigns with a rod of iron. Finally, we have a feast found on Tishri the 22nd and 23rd, according to Leviticus chapter 23, verse 36, and Numbers 29, verse 35, which is referred to Shemini Adzeret, which is the assembly of the eighth day, or and or Simchat Torah, which is rejoicing in the Torah. And these are celebrated as stated on Tishri the 22nd and Tishri the 23rd as one day, even though they're two days. And in the same way as Pentecost is the culmination of Passover, Shemini Atzeret or, and or Simchat Torah are the culmination of the Feast of Tabernacles. In Jewish culture, this time represents the completion of all things where Yeshua, this is Jewish uh, theology here we're talking about, not New, not New Testament, not Christian. In Jewish culture, this represents the completion of all things where Yeshua is the fulfillment of the Torah and will himself, during this period of time, teach us, his uh, elect, all things in the true meaning of the Torah and of all scripture. So, as we take an overall look at the fall, winter feasts and festivals of God's Moedim, the appointed times, his rehearsals, we see that these various rehearsals demonstrate a very distinct pattern which bears an uncanny resemblance to the eschatological theory of the pre-tribulational model. So, by summary, the overall fall-winter Moedim of God's uh, appointed days and calendar would be summarized as follows. Number one, we have Yom Torura on the first and second of Tishri, which represents the rapture, uh, the it's referred to as the day of shouting, the day of trumpets, the hidden day, the day of concealment, the marriage, the coronation of the king where the harvest workers are called in from the field by the last trump to worship the Lord in his temple. Two, we have the days of awe, which by Jewish re uh, reckoning represent the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, a period of seven days between Tishri II and Tishri the Ninth. Uh, the Jews themselves see this period as forecasting God's judgment, Jacob's trouble, God's wrath. Thirdly, we have Yom Kippur, the second coming, when Christ returns to earth and God passes judgment upon the earth both the, the elect and the wicked. Fourthly, we have Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which represents potentially the millennial reign. And then lastly, fifthly, we have Shemini Atzeret, Shemchat Torah, which represent the new heaven and the new earth. This is all the time we have today, but if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening.